Hey everybody, this is Keith Loy. I'm the founding senior pastor of Celebrate Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and this is our podcast. I just want to say thank you for joining us, and it is my prayer that this week's message will truly encourage you. Enjoy. Father God, I thank you so much for the privilege we get to be in your house. And Lord, it's an invitation I don't want us to take too lightly. God, what an incredible thing that we get to be here. We get to gather together. We get to open up your word. Oh my goodness. An incredible love letter that you wrote to us. So God, I just ask that it'd be more than just information that we would somehow ingest, but it would change us. God, it would transform us. There's no way we could leave today without being more like you. So God, I say thanks in advance. And all of God's people, if you agree, would say, I want you to turn to three or four people real quickly, and I want you to tell them, I'm glad you're in the house. Come on. I've got to do something like this. I'll show you I'm not going to do stand-up. <laughs> but I've always said that the thing that I believe we learn best at is through repetition. I think it's the great divide in the church today because most Christians, at least in this country, are always looking for the new and improved as if somehow they'll decide if it's fresh for their lives and if it is, then somehow we just grew. And I would tell you that is exactly the opposite way that Jesus taught. Jesus continued to repeat himself. Jesus over and over said the same thing and tried to find new and creative ways to say it. Because the fact of the matter is, if you and I never touched our Bibles again, and I don't say this to put anybody into disrespect, but this ought to touch most of us, because in America they say over half of those that go to church don't even read the Bible anyway. But if we never read the Bible again, it would take the rest of our lives to try to live out what we already know. Would you agree with that? Think about it. Just the sheer words where Jesus said, I want you to forgive others the way I forgave you. I think that'll take us the rest of our lives to try to figure that one out because it's a lot easier to hold on to a grudge than it is to be like God. It's a lot easier to nurse things when people wrong us if somehow we haven't wronged Christ ourselves. And imagine if Jesus held on to anything the way we hold on to others. Imagine what our relationship with him would be like. It's really crazy, isn't it? But I got to tell you, the most popular verse in the Bible is John 3.16, and I still, at 54 years of age, still struggle with it. I can't get past just a few first words, for God so loved. I, I just stop and try to fathom that. I still can't wrap my arms around it. It's just impossible for me. Just in personalizing those words, for God so loved Keith that he would give his life, why would you give your life for me? There's nothing about me that I deserve eternal life. There's nothing about me that I deserve the love of God. There's nothing about me that God would leave his perfect throne of glory to come down to our cesspool of living. And then he would lay his life down for me. 
I don't know about you because I have a hard time on a daily basis laying my life down for him. I'm just maybe alone, but I'm just trying to be honest and keep it real. And yet he did it happily, full of joy. I, I just can't get my arms wrapped around that still to this day. So I say all that to set this up because we're in a series. If you're a guest, I want to say welcome. I'm really glad that you're here. We're in a series called Extraordinary You. And I contend that most people see themselves as an ordinary person, but I think it's through the ordinary that God does the extraordinary things. I don't think God's looking for your abilities because your abilities are what he gave you anyway. So there's nothing about us that would impress God. There's nothing that's going to happen in the, in the March Madness and who's going to win it that God's going to go, oh my! There's nothing about us that God's going to be impressed because he's the one that gave a piece of himself to us. I think, if, if, if I could be fair, God's more impressed with who he is than he is with who we are. God's more impressed of what he can do through us than what we could do for him. And so I, I, I say all that because God is an amazing God who loves to take the ordinary and only he can do the extraordinary thing. So he's not looking for our ability, he's just looking for our availability, true? He's just looking for us to step up and say, God, here I am, use me. Little old goofy me. Little old messes up me and God's like, cool, dude, I'm going to show you stuff that you can't even begin to imagine. Because that's what the Bible's full of. The Bible is full of ordinary people that God did extraordinary things. And so we're looking at these ordinary people and, and looking what God can do. But I set that up to tell you a story that I told you many years ago, and it's not because I can't find anything new. It's just because it's the story that probably sets up the best what we're going to talk on. And it's a story about a young guy who came into an office to do an interview for, for a job. But he was a little tiny guy. There wasn't really much about his stature that would just kind of uh, appease you and go, wow, we got to hire this guy. And he sat down in front of the office of the boss, and the boss is looking him over thinking, there's just no way I'm going to hire this guy, so let's just move him on. And he said, young man, listen, I know you're here for an interview, but why don't I just be up front with you? We're, we're really looking for some tough guys. And he barely got those words out, and this little dude shot up out of that chair, put his hands on the desk, and says, I'll show you what tough is. This big, burly boss dude kind of sat back in his chair. He's like, what in the world is wrong with you? He says, I'll tell you what tough is. He says, I was out in the woods the other day, and a bear attacked me and ripped my arm right off. I'll tell you what tough is, buddy. I crawled up behind that bear, got it behind its neck, put my good arm around it, and killed that bear. Boy, I'll tell you what tough is, buddy. He said, I picked up that arm, put it in my teeth, and I started dragging that bear through the woods because I was going to take that bear home. I got to a little lake, and I saw a cabin on the other side. I dropped that bear, and I swam with one arm through this frozen water to that, to that cabin, crawled up onto that cabin, knocked on the door. A little old lady answered the door, and I said, ma'am, you got some needle and thread, and I sewed my arm right back on. He sat down, and the boss was like, oh, my. You can have the job. The little dude went, all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know some of you are going to spend the rest of this message going. <laughs> I'll just give it for you. He obviously sewed his arm upside down. <laughs> And uh, I say that because you'd think, why would I say something like that? Because it really sets up about the ordinary guy that we're going to talk about. 
And it really comes from a book by Peter Drucker called The Effective Executive. Here's what he says. Every time you meet a person with great strength, you need to know they also have a great weakness. Let me say it again. Every time you meet a person with great strength, you need to know they also have great weaknesses. But for me, it goes much deeper than that. The question is, do they know what those weaknesses are? Because I think that's really the issue in life. See, I, I've always said, and maybe I've not done you justice, because I've always believed when you look at 2 Corinthians where Paul says, when I'm weak, he'll be strong. And therefore, we should focus in our lives instead of trying to always correct our weaknesses, which I still believe that we need to focus on our strengths that God gave us. But I've always said this, but you can't neglect your weaknesses. You must supplement your weaknesses. But therein lies the problem. Everybody in this room has a great strength, but everybody in this room has a great weakness. In fact, look at someone right now and say, I have weaknesses. They already know it. If you're talking to your married one, trust me, they know them. They could probably account them for you. But I want you to listen to this. Do you really know what those weaknesses are in your life? Do you account for them? Because all of us have them, and we've all seen the story over and over again, where we've seen incredible people who have great strengths, and yet their life gets completely torn apart. And you think, why? Well, it's really not their weakness. Do you know what it is? It's their unattended weaknesses. It's the out-of-control weakness that they just want to push aside. And it's easy to do. You know why? Because our strengths are what gets noticed. It's our strengths that get the applause. It's our strength that gets the attention. And it feels good when people notice those things that God has given us. The only problem is it's the weakness that will destroy your life. Because it's the weakness that Satan watches. So when you unattend them, you may be unattending them. He's not. He's attending to them. And that's the story of our ordinary guy in Scripture. Folks, I'm not saying that we ignore our strengths. I'm just saying you cannot ignore your weaknesses. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 25, you'll be like a city whose walls are broken down. You can have all this good stuff going on, but if you don't keep your walls fortified, the enemy's going to get in. That's just a fact of life. He's always looking, if you will, the devil for that weak area in your life that you just sort of kind of shove aside that you don't want to talk about. And then he destroys your life. So who's this ordinary guy? I want you to look at the scriptures, if you would. I want you to look up at the screen. I want everybody to read out loud with me, if you would. Look what it says in Judges 13, 24. Come on, church. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson, and he grew. Now stop there. A mama gave birth to a child. The child was a prophet given by God. His name was Samson, and he grew. Just an ordinary world, an ordinary guy, an ordinary thing that happens. Every day in this country, it's been happening since the birth of it. But I want you to notice the last phrase, because I don't want you to miss it, because so many people want to overlook this. Read these five words with me. And the Lord blessed him. Isn't that interesting? 
So a woman gives birth to a child, a child that was anointed of God, to be called out by God, to be a prophet. He grew up as everybody grew, grows. But the Bible says, and then the Lord blessed him. And by the way, I want you to know something that's true with Samson. It's true with you. You're blessed as well. It, I, I, I would love to maybe debate this if we could. But I don't think that God comes down and necessarily puts on what people think because that's what justifies their lives, that somehow God comes down, puts his hand on a certain few and says, listen, you're going to be a little bit more blessed than the others. I'm not sure that's so true in our interpretation. I do believe that God comes down, puts his hand on certain individuals and calls them out, but I'm going to remind you, to much is given, much is required. But every life here is blessed of God. It's uniquely created and breathed of God. And God's got incredible things for your life. Everybody in this room matters to God. And everybody in this room is blessed of God. But I want you to listen to this very, very carefully. God's blessings do not assure your success. Samson was blessed of God. Just because God is for you doesn't mean that God is with you. That's a choice you make. Maybe that will help you a little bit instead of justifying your life and somehow you just want to simply hide behind the fact that God's there for me, therefore he's with me, therefore I get the blessings and maybe that's why you struggle because you keep wondering where they're at. But I'm going to help you understand the story of Samson, an ordinary guy that God wanted to do extraordinary things, but he chose to just be the ordinary. And the Bible's very clear that the blessing of God came off him. And I want to walk through this because I think there's much we can learn about the story of Samson that's true in our lives as well. If you were to sum up Samson's life, you know what I would sum it up? Unattended weaknesses, thus a life out of control. Unattended weaknesses, thus he lived a life that was out of control. And it cost him quite a bit. And you know what's really crazy? The three weaknesses he had are the same three weaknesses you and I have. And the Bible says if you don't die to them daily, if you don't pick up cross, Christ's cross daily, the same thing will happen to you that happened to Samson. And so if you got your notes, I want you to take them out. If you got your Bibles, I'd invite you to go to Judges, the book of Judges. I'm going to be in some selected verses of his story that you can find beginning in 13. But we're going to be in chapter 14, 15, and 16. But I want to give you the first one, and here it is. Selfishness. Say that with me. Selfishness. Folks, can we all be selfish Oh, come on. You're going to leave me alone? Who, who in this room would raise their hand and say, I'm no longer selfish. I'm completely abandoned of myself. And every day I get up, I only do what God wants me to do. Because I'd really like to step down and let you step up and you can do all to preach it. Because I don't know about you, that, that would be dishonest to the fact because I've got to die to Keith Loy every day. Do you? You don't. Well, I'd say we're done. I think we're out of here. 
I, I need to just go preach this to myself. You're telling me that everyone in this room, you do just fine 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You're completely just. Church, we got to be involved here. You got to own this stuff. Information doesn't transform you unless you make it personal. Is that true? I don't say this out of spite. I'm I'm being honest. If you've already gotten it, you need to be up here because I haven't. Man, I can still be selfish. Man, I can be on top of the world worshiping on a weekend. I get in my car after church and doggone stoplight turns red. And it's just like all of a sudden everything I preach comes right back. Do you have the same problem I do? I'm so jacked up by Christmas. I get into the line. I go buy the stuff I want to do. And all of a sudden, every line is full. And there's that person that just wants to talk to the attendant about everything and anything that they're not even buying. I don't know about you. I've got to fight that good Christmas feeling. See, I I deal with this all the time. I love the Lord with everything I got. But I also got a schedule that I think sometimes more important than the world that God put me in. I don't know about you, but I've had a busy, hard day, and then I get home, and then my kids need me. And it's a, then I have to fight that awful feeling of me, myself, and I. Does anybody else deal with the same stuff? Oh, my goodness, guys, if you're married, shout a hallelujah, because you deal with it as well. Selfishness. It's a big thing, and Samson was one of those guys that was so selfish his struggle was not that he was selfish. His struggle is he didn't want to pick up that cross and die to it daily. Look at Judges 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. He saw a young Philistine woman. Seems like no big deal. But he returned to his daddy. He said, get her for me. I, almost, I can almost see him. Kind of like Tarzan. Get her for me. His parents replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your own? Which is an important statement. But Samson says, get her for me. She's the one for me. And you're like, why could that be wrong? (laughs) Because God already instructed Samson, you're not to marry anyone who's a non-Jew. So Samson, how could you say, She's the one for me when you're already in complete defiance of who God is. Selfishness. Thinking that you know best. Thinking that you understand. And somehow you can rise above who God is and his standards. Oh, it still happens today because in 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, if you want to play that game, I'll go ahead and play it with you because the old has been transferred to the new that Jesus came then to fulfill the law. And so Jesus set something out and he said this, be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And yet I know how many young Christian girls who date a non-Christian guy. And I know, non, I know Christian guys who date non-Christian girls. And then they say something like this, but they're the one for me. And you're already in defiance of God's word. Yeah, but, but when we get married, I'm going to help him come to know Christ. Who, you the Christ? If you can't reach him before and let God do what only God can do, you're not going to do it. And then we wonder why we enter in and we then become so distruggled in our world. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? 
It happens all the time, church. It happens all the time. Selfishness. You're more concerned about what you could lose than what you could gain. But you know what the Bible says? Galatians 6, do not be misled. Remember that you cannot ignore God and get away with it. You just can't. Do you know that we do not have one time in the entire story of Samson where he prayed to God? We do not have one time except when it's clear at the end in desperation. We'll come to that in a little bit. But listen to this very carefully. Anything that goes against God is a big deal, no matter how trivial you think it is. But that's our problem today. We just don't take God serious. I'm reading a book, or actually finished it, been reading it multiple other times. It's a book by Francis Chan. I will tell you, I'm a fan of Francis Chan. believe he loves the Lord. Do I think he is God? No. I only say that to preface that I never chased the author of the book. I chased the one who authored the author of the book, okay? But I still believe that God raises up people and God does a work for them just like he did in the Word of God. But Francis Chan's an incredible story. What I find interesting about this book, just so you know where your pastor's at, for the last four to five years, I have been in a journey with my father, my heavenly father. And I tell people that this is my favorite book because it's probably the best book I've ever written. They laugh a little, but they don't even know what I mean by that. I actually got in contact with Francis Chan, and not next week, but the week after, I get to have a time with him on the phone because I want to talk deeper about this book and what God did in his life. But if you were to read this book, it's nine chapters in length. The first chapter is his opening story of why he walked away from the church that he was pastoring. I would just go ahead and set that aside. That's his personal story. If you go to chapter 9, I would simply say that that's how God led him. But if you want to know where I'm at, the seven chapters in between, it's as if he had been walking with me for the last four to five years, and then he just wrote the book 100% what was going through my heart and mind. Of all the books I've read, this right now is number one in my reading. And I'm taking our elders through it. I'm taking our key leadership because it's such an amazing book about what I believe the church should be. But I want you to listen to what he says, chapter 2, called The Sacred. I was bothered the first time I read about God killing Uzzah just because he tried to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling. Uzzah touched the Ark because the cart was hitting a pothole and thus the Ark was about to hit the ground. Seems a little trivial, doesn't it? The guy had good intention. Sure, God had forbidden anyone to touch the ark, but what was he supposed to do? Let it hit the ground? Isn't it a little puzzling that King Saul's sacrifice cost him the kingdom? You can read that in 1 Samuel. After all, he waited seven days for Samuel the priest to show up, but the priest didn't show up. But all Saul wanted to do was make sure he had God's blessing before he went into battle. Or what about Moses, who didn't get to see the promised land because he struck the rock rather than speaking to it? After everything Moses went through, was it such a big crime to be frustrated with such a people? Wouldn't have you? Then there's Ananias and Sapphira. They were both struck dead because they lied about how much money they donated to the church. And yet how many of us short God every weekend? 
Then to top it off, Paul told the Corinthians that many of us were that many were sick, and some needed to die because they celebrated communion in an unworthy manner. What if Paul wasn't exaggerating? Could we all be one sip away from death? To us, many situations in Scripture involving punishment seem a little more severe than the crime. But why do we feel this way? Because we don't understand what it means for something to be sacred. We live in a human-centered world among people who see themselves as the highest authority. We're quick to say things like, that isn't fair, that's just not right. Because we believe we deserve certain rights as humans. Yet we give little thought to the rights God deserves as being God. That's a powerful, powerful story and reality that we live in. You know, Pat Riley, one of the most successful basketball coaches in the NBA, argues that it's through team that we find significance. Yet the team can be undermined by the disease of me. The most difficult thing for an individual to do is to sacrifice themselves for the team. Yet Riley cautions Without this sacrifice of sacrificing yourself, you will never know your team's potential or your own. We always settle for less when we're selfish. And yet, how much more has God given us? And I will tell you over and over, I hear people in the church, I just want to do all these great things for God. You will never do them by yourself. You will never do them under your own ideas and strength. You will only do them when you lay yourself down and pick Jesus Christ up. Amen? Here's number two. Emotionalism. <laughs> Say that with me. Emotionalism. Someone once said that Samson thought with his glands rather than the Lord's plans. <laughs> it's a lot of truth to that if you know the story. But I thought you might appreciate this story. It's about a young girl who was writing a paper for her school. So she asked her dad, what's the difference between anger and exasperation? The father replied, well, it's mostly a matter of degree. Let me show you. He picked up the phone and dialed a random number. When a man answered the phone on the other end, he simply said, hello, is Melvin there? The man on the other end said, no, there's no one here by the name of Melvin. Sir, why don't you learn to look up numbers before you dial them? And then he hung up. He turned to his daughter and said, see, that man was not happy. He's probably very busy with something, and all I did was annoy him. But now watch. The father then redialed the number. Once again, hello, is Melvin there? Now look here, mister, came a heated reply. You just called me, and I told you there's no Melvin here. You got a lot of nerve calling me back, and you could hear the phone slam down on the other end. The father then turned and said, sweetie, that was anger. Now let me show you exasperation. <laughs> he then redialed the same number. A violent voice roared, hello! The father calmly said, this is Melvin. Has there been any calls for me? <laughs> Church, listen. Samson was a hothead. His emotion was anger. I don't know, has anybody ever seen the Hulk? Okay, Samson was the original. Do you remember Dr. David Bannister? 
you know, the scientist who was doing some experiments and one went south and all of a sudden out of anger when he can't control it, he turns into this big giant green dude and starts breaking things up uncontrollably. Welcome to Samson's life. In Judges 14, he killed 30 men just for their clothing. In Judges 15, he was so mad at the Philistines that he caught 300 foxes, tied their tails together, lit them on fire, and destroyed all of their grains of fields. It's, it's just interesting. Later in Judges 15, he took the jawbone of an ass, a donkey, and he killed 1,000 men, which I thought was kind of funny because I heard about a lady in our church who asked another lady in another church, does God ever use the jawbone of an ass today? To which she said, every weekend. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do not believe in revenge, but I can't wait to meet that lady. Um, but you know, Will Rogers was right. People who fly into a rage always make a bad landing. They always do. So, so let me help you and personalize this. How short is your fuse? You know, when someone lights it? Because you need to catch this. The length of your fuse is the length of your effectiveness with God. You can play it out anyway. How long is your fuse when she lights your fire? Because how quickly you give in, that's the length of how effective you'll be for God. Whatever your emotional state is, that's how much God can use you. You get to decide the extraordinary. Emotionalism. But when it comes to anger, look what James 1 says, for the anger of man never the word never, by the way, is emphatic. For the anger of man never produces the righteousness of God. Can't do it. Folks, listen, an eye for an eye makes the world blind, doesn't it? A tooth for a tooth means we all eat oatmeal. <laughs> Yay. Okay? So selfishness, emotionalism. Here's the third one. Carelessness. You want to see the extraordinary of your life? Then you have to start taking the things of God serious. You just can't get careless about it. Look what the Bible says in Proverbs 19.16. You might want to write that verse down. Proverbs 19.16. He who is careless in their conduct, in other words, how they choose to live their life, he who is careless in their conduct will die. And he's not talking physically, even though that'll happen too. Carelessness always produces death. By the way, when Samson was a teen, he took a vow. It's called the Nazarite vow, and there's three mandatory pieces to this. And the first was you could never drink alcohol. Dear Lord, I wish that was true in our world today. People say there's nothing wrong with alcohol. I don't know about you. There'd be a lot more children still alive without it. I can tell you this. If the alcohol was completely banned... What would shock me is how many people would try to fight that band, which I've never found anything good in it. I can just tell you this, if alcohol no longer exists, the world would be a much better place. And I'm always proud to say at 54, I've never touched a drop, so evidently you can live without it. <laughs> but you were never to drink alcohol. 
You are to be on a very special diet. But the third one is you can never cut your hair. I don't know if you know this, but early in his life, Pastor Carmen took that vow. <laughs> but in Judges 16, in Ju <laughs> I can't even look over this way now there. I'm sorry, Sam, I mean, Carmen. Anyway, but in Judges 16, 4, Look what it says. Sometime later, notice what happens here. Time has passed, which is really important you catch this. Why I know that Samson was careless in how he lived because he couldn't even learn in a moment. The Bible was very clear as a young child, I will not marry a non-Jew. This vow really matters, which I'm going to tell you something important that you need to hear about life. But some time has now passed and he still hasn't figured this thing out. Because it says Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek. Here we go again. His name was Delilah. Couldn't learn the first time around. Couldn't learn the second time around. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his strength. We'll give you 1,000 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength. Now, no big deal. All he had to do was go, no, I cannot do that. But he's already in trouble because he's already forsaken what mattered to God. Folks, listen to this very carefully. Once you put a foot in a door that you should not be in, there's a really high chance you're going to go all the way into the room. And this happens all the time. It happens all the time. He thought he could play a game, a game that he would never win, called a game of carelessness. As the old adage goes, you keep playing with fire, you're going to get burned. Look what happens, verse 17, Judges 16. As with such nagging, she prodded him day after day. But it's important you catch this, until he was so tired to death. Not that he just grew tired. He's wanting to die. So he told her everything. I want to stop there and tell you two things you need to know. First of all, Samson's strength did not come from his hair. That's what you need to hear. His strength came from the heart by which he took the vow. Maybe another way to say it, the heart of every matter in your life is really a matter of the heart. See, whoever you date, whatever you do with your finance, whatever you do in your work, whatever you do in your marriage, these don't matter. It's where they come from. Choose this day whom you will serve. It's an open invitation that God gives us all the time. What really matters here? It will always come out here. For the mouth speaks what's in the heart. And the Bible says, and God judges the attitude of the heart. See, I will tell you this. If Samson's heart was right, if someone would have shaved his head, he would have still been strong. But if your heart's not right, even if you keep the hair, you're still wrong. You with me on this? But here's a second part you need to hear. Sin doesn't happen overnight. It's a game of time, a game of becoming careless. You might want to write this down. A leak is a leak. 
It doesn't matter how big the hole is. All the hole is is, is telling you how long it's going to take for the boat to sink. A leak's a leak. You can spend all of your life going, well, I'm not doing that. And God's going, you're still going to drown your boat, dude. A leak is a leak. And that's the problem with carelessness. So look what happens, verse 19, having put him to sleep on her lap. I love that picture in a very sarcastic way. She called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair. I, I, I just play on that one when I'm reading it. Where the heck did he come from? Was he underneath the bed? Hmm. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep. Watch what happens. And he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. I'll go out. I'll shake myself free. But here's the sickness. He didn't even know the Lord had left him. He didn't even know the Lord had left him. I wonder how many of us in this room don't even know that God might have already left us. Now, let me just place something on you because some of you might be one of those high Calvinists who believe once you're saved, you're always saved. And some of you might be one of those Arminiists who believes that you can lose your salvation. I want you to know I'm neither. I'm a Christian. I'm not following Calvin. I'm not following Arminian, even though they took the word of God and they took their own theology to it. I'm following the one that wrote theology. So I want you to listen. I'm not into Calvinism where you're looking for a life insurance policy so somehow you can, you can control the relationship with God and somehow you can say, well, God's stuck with me. So then it gives you license to go do what you want. I'm not into that. I'm also not into Arminian who wants to play in a guilt trip that somehow you can lose your salvation and you keep wondering, how, how, how am I doing? Have I gotten there yet? Listen, I'm not looking for a fence line of theology. I want to be out in the green pastures where Jesus called me to be. See, my, I want to teach people this. How about we seek Jesus and neither one of them really matter? It's not about whether you can keep it or lose it. Because if I'm chasing Jesus, I'm always where Jesus is. And when Jesus got me in his hand, nothing can snatch me out. See, church, that's where I stand. You chase all the theology you want. My theology is wrapped in the one I'm chasing. I'm not looking for the world's way. I'm not looking to justify myself. I'm justified in Jesus. I want to know who he is. See, that's where I am. So I don't want to wrestle with that. But I just have to wonder, where is your relationship with God? Maybe it's why you criticize the way you do and what you criticize. Maybe it's why you react when things don't go your way as you had hoped and planned. And you always think it's unfair. Let me tell you what unfair is, that God would even give his life for me. Maybe it's why you can easily see the wrong in others, but you never really can take a look at the wrongs in yourself. Maybe it's why your worship is stale and unemotional rather than coming into the house of the Lord and going, wow, like a child walking into Disney World. Why isn't it that the mature in Christ, when they walk into the house of God, it's always more stoic than it is like a child? That our worship is more conditioned by the churches we are raised in rather than the one we're supposed to be raising our hands to. Maybe it's carelessness, because no one plans to fail. Nobody plans to be an alcoholic. No one plans to be a drug addict. No one intends to destroy their marriage, but one little glance turns into a lifetime of gaze. It's the problem of carelessness, isn't it? 
We say we're giving our heart away and holding the hands of someone. And over time, why is it that all of a sudden our eyes begin to wander and we check out other people? And we think it's privatized because no one sees it. I watch it all the time. As if God doesn't notice. But by the way, you need to know something. You may think no one else notices and you might think it's hidden, but nothing's hidden to God and it's not hidden to the devil either. Because he seeks to destroy. And he's just looking for those careless Christians that he knows aren't taking it serious. He'll give it time so they can impact others and then he takes them down so it impacts others. Carelessness. Look what happened. Judges 16, then the Philistines seized Samson, gorged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shekels, and setting him to grind in prison. Isn't that interesting? Three things. Sin blinds us. That's why so many Christians get comfortable, and they say something like this. You can't judge me. They're more interested in what other people are doing rather than what God might know. And you're right, I won't judge you. You can work that out with your God that you s seem to love. It blinds you. And when he takes away your eyesight, the devil, and you can't see the world as the way God sees it, he now binds you. And then you live a life that grinds you. Always seem to find the fault, always seem to be critical, always seem to, and there's no joy. And if you're like a lot of American Christians, you slowly move toward the back door till eventually you find it so you can go somewhere else and sit in the front row until you have to start dealing with it again. And then you go to the next door and you go back out and you sit in the front until you have to start dealing with it again. Why? Because perception is skewed. You don't come to the church to find out what you want to hear. You come to the church longing for God to speak to your life. And that you would be more like him. That's what love does. Selfish, careless, emotional. Where are you at? I want to wrap this up, but I hope you don't miss this. The team's going to come, but I want you to see this story played out before you. Watch this. Hi, I'm Andy Whitrock. I'm Amy Whitrock. We met junior year in high school and it started six years of dating. And then after that, June 26th of 2010 comes around and we got married. We're in love with each other, in love with the Lord, and then we experienced something we thought we'd never experience. So it was, it was kind of a slow phase, I would say, where, you know, when you go into marriage, things are just great. And after a while, we just, we weren't doing the right things. I started to think of, he could be so much better if he did this. I started to push away his way of trying to love me. Yeah, I mean, ultimately we started um, looking at other people. And again, comparing our spouses to these other people and saying, you're not doing this and you're not doing this or you're not filling my love tank in this way. We started seeking bad relationships. We started seeking other things of the world to fill that void that we were now experiencing to the point where we were both at the verge of depression, suffering from anxiety, and just living the world in a negative way. 
without the Lord at this point. We ended up living in separate rooms for a long time and then ultimately moving out. We had divorce papers drafted out and almost ready to go and I made this promise to God and I promised specifically that I was going to try to reconquer my marriage and that I was going to try until I bled. And breaking point came for us when I remember Andrew was sitting in Carmen's office and I was kneeling in another office. And at this point, I had, a I had had a bloody nose for a really long time. My scrubs had blood on them and stuff shoved up my nose. And here I am praying with Chris, you know, and Carmen comes in and he says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And he brought me into his office. From that moment on, we, we recommitted our lives to Christ, both individually and our marriage to Christ. We got remarried on our five-year anniversary. One month before we were going to renew our vows, the next thing I knew, I was pregnant. And we didn't know how to feel at that point because now there was going to be a kid in our life. We named her uh, Lucy, which means bringer of light. She's just this little rambunctious child running around and you can see God all over her. She's the aftermath of, you know, the bringer of light of, after God working in her marriage. Um, she's, she's the fruits of that love. We started seeking a Christian counselor after we recommitted ourselves. But when we weren't meeting with her, our accountability partners were key. Um, because in the middle of the night when, uh, say after we got done with a fight or something like that, they were there. We could text them, we could call them. Serving is part of a way to really let everybody and God know that you are committed. For me, I'm committed to serve because it's what makes me be better and it's what makes me be the person God has created me to be. We started having more than one, two couples come to us and ask us, hey, is it okay if you guys share a little bit of your story with us? We didn't even know where to start. Where do we even begin? We're nobody. But we started to get multiple couples that wanted to sit and talk to us. And that's when we were like, we need to start a life group, a marriage focused life group that is going to help build others up, that is going to allow a moment for us to be raw and vulnerable with each other and ultimately help each other grow with one purpose of seeking the Lord and getting closer to Him and being in love with the Lord and growing our marriages. Completely being devoted to each other and to Christ, it changed everything. And, and from that moment, I mean, we, we prayed together every day. We read scripture together. We, um, we went on date nights. We, I learned her love language and she learned mine. And, and we just poured into each other. <laughs> and, and again, still today, our marriage isn't perfect, right. you know, but with Christ at the center of it, it does make all of the difference. And I don't just say that just because that's what we're supposed to say. It really does make the difference. The word divorce isn't in our vocabulary anymore. We still have arguments, we still fight, but we don't say the word ever divorce. There's always gonna be struggles, there's always gonna be hardships in a marriage, but it's learning how to drive through them with God being at the center. If God isn't there, it's not gonna be a happy road. What a picture of grace. What an incredible picture of grace. Was it easy? Was it worth it? Yeah. 
God's grace is sufficient. And the story of Samson is so beautiful that we don't want to just end it there. Because if you go to Judges 16, verse 28, you'll discover, remember that prayer that he finally prayed? But we know that his heart was right. you got to be careful when you read it because it almost sounds selfish again because he says, God, if you could just one last time, in response to losing my sight, he cries out and says, I've blown it. Would you give me that strength again? Well, we know that his heart was right because in, in Hebrews 11, thousands of years later, it's recorded that he was known by his faith. And God restored the strength. And in one last heroic move, the Bible says he killed one more people in that moment than he did his entire lifetime who were evil. And it changed the world. It changed the, the future of the Hebrew people. It's an amazing thing, which I only say that to say this. He's still a God of second chances. He's still a God of third and fourth and fifth and sixth. He didn't give up on Samson. He's not giving up on you. He still parts water. He still moves mountains. He still raises people from the dead. He's an amazing God. And when I love Andy and Amy are a picture of that story. And I'm well versed in this story. I got to be a part of watching God transform their hearts and take them to a place they didn't even dream possible. And I think if I could speak for them, they'd say this. One of the great reasons we're in this thing is because there's other things we still want to see. He's not done. He's just not done. And he's not done with you, church. Today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the time. And some of you in this room, it's time for you to die to that self. There's some places you know where you've been selfish. There's places where you've been about your emotions and feelings and you've let them govern your life. It's time to surrender those. There's some places that you've been careless. God's word has not been the authority. It's easy to let the world get into the way. It's now time to rededicate, to resurrender. And so the team's gonna sing, I'm gonna pray first. And we're going to open up the altars. And you say, why do I do it? I want to be an altar-finding church, an altar-seeking church, because it's you getting out of the comfort where you're at and saying to all of heaven and before the throne of God, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm not going to be about my comfort. I'm going to point my feet in the direction, and I'm going to get back to the Holy of Holies. That's why the church was designed the way it was designed. And it's time, church. I want to be that church. We get broken before God. And in our ordinary selves, then we get to start seeing God do the extraordinary things. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Let me pray. Church is going to sing. Father, I thank you for everybody in this room. I thank you for the story of Andy and Amy. And God, some of their story now has become someone else's story. Today is the day. There's some people that need to do some business with God. It's time to do it in the goodness of who you are. You're not done with them. There's nothing they've done you're disappointed. There's nothing they've done that the cross isn't big enough. You're still almighty God. You're still good. The redeeming, the righteous, the forgiving, the healing God. Lord, I pray that people would find their way to the altar 
in the invitation of this song. And Lord, in doing that, find the true freedom and beginning in you.